is good to spend time confessing sin on a snowy day. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the first Sunday of Advent season in the life of the church where we slow down and we, we're supposed to anyway. <laughs> and we focus on a few key things like hope and peace and joy and love and then Christ himself, obviously, who brings us all of those things. And so this morning we will think about hope and we're going to take a break from preaching through Mark. We're going to look at the songs that we see in the Gospel of Luke at the beginning of Jesus' life here on this earth. And so as we look to hope this morning, we're going to think about hoping in our Lord, hoping in his might and hoping in his memory of us. But hoping and waiting are friends. Have you ever thought about how those two things go together, hoping and waiting? Kids, you're all waiting for Christmas morning. You get excited. There's going to be some presents maybe that you get to open. I was always not good about waiting. I was wanting to open one early. We've already built in early presents for our kids so that we can head off that desire of theirs. But you hope for the things that are coming, and then you wait for them. And what we hope for shapes how we wait. You know, if it's something small and insignificant, who cares if it doesn't really happen? Like that Amazon package that never got delivered and you forgot about it until they emailed you and told you it hasn't been delivered yet. You just weren't really waiting on it. It's not significant. But then you think about those things you hope for that are grand and great. They're wonderful and beautiful, like parents waiting on a newborn. And they, that newborn finally comes. They're just struck with joy and gladness. Men come apart in the delivery room and weep when they would not admit it later. We saw this yesterday in the prison. Kids came in and were waiting with great anticipation to see their mothers. And then the mothers came in and as fast as those prison guards would let them cross the room because of their kids. And there was just this bursting forth of smiles and joy and deep conversation and long hugs that I guarantee you are not typical of their daily experience. And as just a small aside, Frack family, you ministered to Jesus yesterday. Your ministry to La Vista Correctional Facility was a ministry to Jesus himself. And your giving and your praying, your prayers for Alicia, for those who went and served, for the ladies and their children, those of you who all went down and served together. He was, Jesus was there. And when we ministered to them, we ministered to him. And when we stand before him in glory, as the text said, Jesus will say, you know, you served me. And you'll say, when did we serve you? And he'll say, when you were in Pueblo, you served me. You loved me. And what we showed yesterday to those ladies in prison is that God is for the humble. God is for the broken. God draws near to the downcast. We embodied that as we served those children and those mothers who were waiting anxiously for that party for a very long time. And we see that in our Lord Jesus Christ this morning in the text. 
the value and the beauty and the glory of the thing or the person that we wait for shapes the way we wait. And so Advent is a season of waiting and hoping. We wait for the Lord Jesus to come. And just as Ryan said, we remember his first coming. So we look to the Lord in hope this morning for all that he has for us. We come to Luke chapter one. So if you haven't opened there, please do. God's people had been waiting for the Lord to act for a very long time. There had been about 400 years of silence up to this point. And Israel knew their promises. They knew that the Messiah was gonna come eventually. They were waiting and longing. And yet God arrives in a very unexpected way. His might and his memory are on display through very unusual and unexpected circumstances. So Luke 1, 39 through 56. We hope in God's might and we hope in God's memory. Let's look at 39 through 45 here. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now this is following Gabriel's announcement to her that she's gonna have a child She's not married, and that this child will be the son of the Most High. He will save his people from their sins. So she knows this, and she's pregnant, and she goes down to visit Elizabeth. In verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. That's John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. We're going to see that we hope in God's might And we see his might displayed right out of the gate here from, through the humble, through Mary, through Elizabeth, through John the Baptist in the womb. This unexpecting, lowly teenage girl who is pregnant, which would have brought great shame and fear in her life. And although she knew at this point that the baby she was carrying was special, Yet walking around pregnant at the age of 13-ish, we aren't 100% sure, was not a good thing for an unmarried young lady in Israel. Perhaps she needed the company of a woman, a new scene, a new town where people didn't quite know her as well. So she headed down to Elizabeth's house. Elizabeth and Zechariah, her husband, who's a priest, probably lived close to Jerusalem so that Zechariah could fulfill his role. So this was probably a couple of days journey for Mary down to visit Elizabeth. And when Mary arrives, we get a glimpse of God's might inside of Mary, Jesus inside of Mary. Because as soon as Jesus comes into the room in the womb of Mary, this little baby, John the Baptist, leaps inside his mother's womb. He's leaping for joy. The, The word is like a, the skipping and frisking of young animals in the morning. Like they, John is elated in utero to meet his Savior. We have a baby who was promised to be filled 
with the Spirit inside the womb. That's the promise that was made to John the Baptist. And we see right here that he's receiving Christ and receiving the Spirit of, of our holy God in the womb. Let's make careful presumptions about life inside the womb. And the Spirit of God comes to Elizabeth too in this moment. In utero, Jesus is sending the Spirit of God to his own. <laughs> and Elizabeth, who had been keeping herself hidden for five to six months, is now overflowing with joy. So she proclaims in verse 42, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She's not conferring blessing to Mary. She's acknowledging a state of blessedness in Mary. This child in Mary's womb is a gift of divine grace. God's might is on display through Jesus in the womb of his mother, Mary. And Elizabeth says that Mary is the mother of her Lord. So Mary's blessed because she believes what was spoken to her. This sweet, unassuming teenage girl looked on with suspicion by all who believed God, believed what was spoken from him and is blessed because of it. And although Mary could not see exactly what all was going on, she's blessed because of God's blessing on her life. Take note of how mighty God is through the humble. Elizabeth and John the Baptist are filled with the Spirit. Not the priestly husband of Elizabeth. Not religious rulers. Mary, this young teenage girl. Elizabeth, a woman in hiding. John the Baptist, a child in the womb. God is displaying his might and his value through women and through children in utero. He's magnifying his name through the humble. And God's might always comes in these unexpected ways. And what's Mary's response? She magnifies the Lord. She just turns and magnifies God. This is Mary's Magnificat, that Magnificat word. That's the name, the word in Latin, Magnificat. Anime mea dominum. Some of you young kids in homeschool or who are learning Latin at school might be able to translate that. Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord, she says. So God is mighty through the humble, through the lowly, through the unexpected. But he's mighty in our praise too. Mary just bursts forth and sings a song of praise to God. Remember, Mary's young here. She's probably around 13 years old. What a beautiful testimony of the faithfulness of others who have invested in Mary over the years and given her the vocabulary to sing these kinds of praises, right? There, when you read commentaries on the Bible, it's stunning what you'll run into, but there are strange critics that think a teenage girl could not have written this. But they also think Jesus rose from the dead. So I'm not sure where, <laughs> where they get misaligned there. Like if Jesus can rise from the dead, he can also fill 13-year-old girls with this kind of praise, can't he? Absolutely he can. There was a time in Brooklyn was five years old, she rebuked me with scripture. Yeah, I was, uh, I picked up this folder. I was going to put it on the shelf. And when I did, 
an entire batch of paper dolls fell on the ground. You know those paper, you know what I'm talking about? Paper dolls where you fold the little things over them? Like every boy's nightmare, but every girl's dream. And so, so I, I'm down, I'm picking them up, and I kind of look at Sarah, and I'm like, hey, this is one of those that might disappear at nap time. Like, when they're asleep, this might be gone forever. Well, Brooklyn picks up on my angst. And we had been learning James 1, 2 through 4 in a song at children's ministry on Wednesday nights. And she's like, Dad, trials make you stronger. (laughs) And then she went on to sing the song, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, endurance. (laughs) Don't underestimate the might of God's word in song, in song, in our lives. Mary magnifies God beautifully in this moment because God's embedded truths in her heart through song. They bring truth to our heart, don't they? They let us express truth with the proper emotion. They keep truth and doctrine from being stale and cold. Oh, death, where is your sting, right? Like we sang that about Christ is risen. He conquered the grave and you have the crescendo in the song that lifts you to the glories of the truth You're singing. The songs we sing have formative power in our lives. Don't underestimate the power of song. And what does Mary say here? Look at verses 46. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's experiencing a state of joy and gladness that just overflows verbally, like someone who exclaims, you know, praise the Lord, and their hands go up. For Mary, she overflows in song, magnifying the Lord. This magnifying is not taking something really small and trying to make it look big. That's not what we're talking about when magnifying. We're saying, look at this absolute grandeur of God. Look at this amazing, incredible work that God is doing. Draw your attention to it. Magnify it in your eyes, in your life, in your mind. She's rejoicing in God himself, in her Savior. Now, Luke has no problem giving divine status to Jesus. Mary rejoices in God, her Savior. It's the same word that the angels will tell the shepherds later that the Savior is born. The Mighty One, the Lord, the Savior has come. He's come in complete, though, in shocking and complete humility through a humble girl. Our Lord became man and entered into this world to display his might. And Mary can't help but overflow in song. He's magnified. His might is magnified in our singing. But Jesus' might is also displayed in humility. We hope in this might of Jesus seen in humility. Here he is, a helpless baby. Now, if you... If your mind is alert this afternoon, in sharp, you could go read this sermon by Jonathan Edwards called The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus. Or wait till tomorrow morning after coffee kicks in, whatever. But Edwards is tough. But the truths he brings out are beautiful here. And what he's, he's, he's saying is there's these diverse excellencies, very different but excellencies, because they're in our Lord, 
they're diverse, but they're brought together in him. Things like he's a lion and a lamb. He holds infinite justice, but also infinite grace. He has reverence toward God, but he's equal with God. He has infinite worthiness of good. No one deserves more good than Jesus. But he shows the greatest patience under suffering. He has a succeeding spirit of obedience to God. He has exceeding spirit of obedience. But he's supreme in dominion over everything. But yet he shows his obedience. It's a beautiful sermon. It's worth taking the time to, to think through a process. And that's what we see right here in Jesus. We see infinite glory in lowest humility. As Augustine says, man's maker was made man, ruler of the stars that he might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, that the fountain would thirst, that the light would sleep, that the way would be tired on its journey, that the truth Jesus would be accused of false witness, that the teacher would be beaten with whips, the foundation would be suspended on wood, strength would grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. We have a king in a manger, the deliverer who was delivered the creator who has become creation. Mary's son is God's son. Jesus came in great might, but he came in great humility to take on human flesh and experience what we experience so that he can relate to us, feel what we feel, endure what we endure, resist what we resist, and conquer everything we fail to conquer. And as we look at what he came to do, we must receive from him humility because knowing he himself humbled himself, right? We're humbled by the most humble. We're saved by the one that needed no saving. The one that we disregarded and offended is the one that came to us to save us. And that's what Jesus does. In this text, we see that God through Jesus is mighty, to humble and save. He's mighty to humble and save. Look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. Strength with his arm. This is idea of power to rule and control. This is used to save. The arm of God was a common way of referring to God's redemption of Israel when they were under Egyptian slavery. He says, the mighty deeds performed by his arm, his right arm of power, you may have heard. Those magnificent acts of long ago, Mary's saying, are now happening again. God's on the move now. And what's he doing? Continue in verse 51. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The humble one is bringing down the proud. God's mighty to overthrow the proud, right? The thoughts of our are of the proud or on themselves, our sufficiency, my supremacy. I don't need any help. Everyone exists for me. Everything exists for me. 
These are the thoughts of the proud. I can do better than that. Pride causes us to forget God and refuse to acknowledge his might and sovereignty. And so God scatters the proud because their pride keeps them from him. Their pride keeps them from seeing their need of him. Verse 52, he goes on. He has brought down, she goes on, sorry. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. We all have thrones we like to sit upon. We kind of need to be brought down from time to time. Where we see, we see ourselves upon this throne and kind of command all the world around us. We think we, we have control here. And as Spurgeon once said, either you can humble yourself or the Lord will humble you. Those are your options, right? And that's what we're seeing. Only the humble can receive Christ as Savior. Only the ones knocked down off their throne, only the one whose prideful thoughts are scattered sees that, oh, we need salvation. I see myself rightly now. I see myself as prideful. I see myself as weak. I need to be saved. In verse 53, he goes on, he's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Rich, rich is such a bit of a relative term. I've been joking around about rich and poor lately when buying the house, but man, Globally, I'm so rich. I'm exceedingly rich. But those who have riches entrust those riches. The Lord will empty their pockets. So they'll find something of eternal value to fill their longings. Whatever we have, whatever we're holding on to, whatever prideful image of ourselves we have, Jesus Christ, the one who became humble, who humbled himself, will humble us in order to save in order to awaken in us our need of him. He loves to save the least. He loves to save the undeserving. Look at after verses 46 and 47, when Mary just exalts the Lord, every single verb describes what God does for his people. As the old hymn says, all the fitness he requires is to see your need of him. But then he has exalted those of humble estate. So those who see their need, who see their brokenness, who see their pride and just throw themselves upon him, he exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry. He looks on the humble estate of his servant, Mary, and draws her to himself and uses her mightily. His mercy is for those who fear him. Those who fear the Lord recognize I. I have no hope outside of you. I'm, I have no right to stand in your presence, but I'm nowhere else to go. And he shows mercy upon them because he remembers us. He remembers his promises. He remembers his people. He remembers you specifically, singularly. So we hope in his great might as he humbled himself and he humbles us in order to save us. But we also hope in his memory. Look at verse 54 with me. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So he's helping his servant Israel. Why? In remembrance of his mercy. He remembers something just as he spoke to the fathers. So he doesn't remember because he forgot, right? 
This isn't like Kevin McAllister's mom in Home Alone on the airplane. Kevin! You know, that's, that's not the kind of remembering God does here. Remembering is that he can't forget anything in the way we forget. He remembers it because God has a plan and a purpose and a promise to carry out that plan. And he knows that he plans to carry it out. And he remembers his plan of salvation. He remembers because he's God and he's gonna do everything he ever said he would do. It's like when you go to your dad, dad, did you remember we were gonna do such and such? And he says, yeah, I, I do remember, I'm working on it. It's always in God's mind. He's always carrying it out. And he remembers his promise. It says in verse 54, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke. You think back to Genesis 12 and 15, to Abraham when he said, you're from you, I will make a great people. They will be more numerous than the stars of the sky or the sand at sea. He bless Abraham, bless his offspring that they would be a blessing. And God has not forgotten that promise. Promises to do a redemptive work all throughout the scriptures. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. Be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. God doesn't forget these things. He's remembering them, remembering these promises, and then bringing it about in his son, Christ Jesus, right here. But he also remembers his people. And remembering those promises, those promises are to people. They're to his people. Like it says in verse 54, he has helped his servant, Israel. So God's might is on display towards his people. He loves them and they occupy a constant place in his mind. He's not a distant God working from some remote location without regard for how his decisions impact those around him. His actions are helpful and merciful because he remembers his people. Look at that, he says in verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. God's actions are helpful to you. He comes to seek and empower and uphold and give you all you need for life and godliness. Every promise is yes in Christ Jesus. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. He comes to his people. He remembers his people to help and to give mercy because his memory is not just of his promise or broad category of his people, but he remembers you specifically. Notice how personalized Mary's initial praise is. He who's done great things, he who is mighty, has done great things for me. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. God's greatness is revealed in his intimacy with you. He keeps you in his memory. And he's mighty remember you specifically. He takes thought of you. He cares of you. Like Mary, you may feel very small and insignificant in this world. You may feel that way. Not to our Lord. Not to the one who made you. He's mindful of us 
personally involved with us. He knows your name. He knows your thoughts. He knows what keeps you up at night. He knows what brings you joy first thing in the morning. He knows you. You won't be forgotten. We have reason to hope in him, his great might, and his great memory this Christmas of you, of your, his people, and of his promises. And so it's worth waiting for Jesus. It's worth waiting until he comes and being faithful until he comes. This Christmas, as we look back to his first arrival, may that stir hope in us and empower us to be faithful to him until he comes again. As Mary, Mary self-defined herself as his servant, and in some translations it may say female slave. And down in verse 54, he's helped his servant Israel. To be, to willingly call yourself the servant of a master says something about the master, doesn't it? It says that he remembers you. He says that he uses his might for your good. And it means you're willingly going to serve him because you know he has all good things for you. So as we hope in Christ this Christmas, may our posture be one of a slave hoping, willingly obeying our glorious yet humble master who will soon return. And if we question that, we can look back and know that he came once already. We're on his heart. We're on his mind. He will not forget you. And he will use his might to keep you firmly until he comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for humbling yourself in great might coming to us to save us and make us your own. Lord, we pray you would keep us humble before you this, this day and in our lives that we would see our great need of you, that we would regularly cry out to you for your might to save and empower us and strengthen us to live lives in service to you that bring you glory and that bring you honor, Lord. Lord, as we take your supper now, we take you in and remember what you've done now for us. Lord, we pray that we will know and rejoice in the fact that not only do we remember, Lord Jesus, that you died for us, but you remember us even in this moment and you are here with us now. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.